0: Welcome to Explore the Space. We're digging into healthcare issues that matter most. Our guests and conversations mine these issues for perspective and answers. There is a gulf between healthcare and our communities. This is the place to talk about it. Now here's your host, Dr. Mark Shapiro. Welcome back to Explore the Space podcast. I'm your host, Mark Shapiro. Before we get to today's episode, a thank you to Lori Bedke and Creighton University for sponsoring this episode. Creighton University believes in equipping physicians for success in the exam room, the operating room, and the boardroom. If you want to increase your business acumen, deepen your leadership knowledge, and earn your seat at the table, Creighton's Healthcare Executive Education is for you. Specifically tailored to busy physicians, our hybrid programs blend the richness of on-campus residencies with the flexibility of online learning. Earn a Creighton University Executive MBA degree in 18 months or complete the non-degree Executive Fellowship in six months. Visit www.creighton.edu backslash C-H-E-E to learn more. My guest in this episode of Explore the Space is Dr. Ashley Hink. Dr. Hink is a trauma, burn, and critical care surgeon at the Medical University of South Carolina, as well as the founder and medical director of the MUSC Turning the Tide Violence Intervention Program, which is the first hospital-based violence intervention program in South Carolina. In this fantastic conversation, we cover her sense of trauma surgeon morale nationwide, the importance of having a network when you're creating something new, and then obviously the specifics around the Turning the Tide Violence Intervention Program, where it started, where there's been resistance, and hopefully what the future can hold with a program like this. We recorded this after a spate of gun violence in South Carolina, and we recorded it before the more recent outburst of gun violence, particularly in Buffalo, and it really resonates. This is important stuff, and there's a call to action here that for everyone in healthcare needs to ring out loud and clear. There is much work to be done, and we need everybody to contribute what they can, how they can, and to start doing it as soon as they can. A quick reminder, please do check out the entire archive of Explore the Space podcast at www.explorethespaceshow.com. You can hit me on Twitter at ETS Show, Instagram at Explore the Space Show, and you can email me anytime, mark at ExploreTheSpaceShow.com. You can find Explore the Space Podcast anywhere you'd like to download your podcast. Please do share the show with your friends and your colleagues. Please do spread the word on social media as well. All of those things really help us out. And if you have the chance to give us a five star rating and a review, that is always appreciated. Dr. Hink is doing great work. The Turning the Tide program is fantastic. This was a wonderful conversation. I think you're going to really enjoy it. So without further ado, Dr. Ashley Hink. Ashley, welcome to Explore the Space. Thank you for coming on.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Mark.
0: This is very, very cool. South Carolina is in the news for lots of reasons over the last couple of years, some good, some not so good. I saw a headline from you on Twitter about the work that you do. I think that's how we got connected. But we have a mutual friend who said, No, no, you you need to do this.
1: We do. And uh, yeah, that that's a lot to unpack, actually, because right, we're <laughs> we're in the headlines a lot. Yeah. Um, for good and bad. And um, we do have a mutual uh, friend and colleague and Dr. Annie Andrews.
0: I'm that's right. so fort-
1: fortunate because I've been able to call her a friend and uh, a research partner and a partner in advocacy um, for children's health and to uh, really advocate for smart policies and programs to help reduce violence. And so I'm incredibly lucky to have her in my life. And we're lucky to have her here in South Carolina.
0: It's very cool that you guys work together. I think that that's awesome. I I, I want to start. I always like to start right. People who've listened to the show, they've heard me say this before. I always like to start with like the sort of high level strategic viewpoint, but I want to start from the viewpoint of a trauma surgeon and in the sort of trauma surgery world. Now that we're sort of sort of able to you know go to conferences and and talk more, and we've got you know a whole host of experiences under our belt from the last few years. When trauma surgeons hang out, if I was on a Slack channel with 25 trauma surgeons and I'm the hospital doing the consults. What are the like three main topics work related that trauma surgeons are going to be chatting about?
1: <laughs> well, um if it's going to be serious and work related, so we'll keep right, it to the serious right. stuff first, right? Fair enough. Um you know, I think that it would number 1 be um, oh, my gosh, everyone thinks this is neck fashion. It's not. <laughs> but okay. it's really important to rule it out. So happy to take the consult. <laughs> okay. um, so that's probably one of them. Um, the other is, oh, my gosh, you know, why can't we get XYZ specialty in at X, Y hour of the night (laughs) or the weekend to work like we do to help take care of our patients and address their needs. Right. Um, and then, you know, I think the third, uh, would probably be, um, something along the lines of, Oh my gosh, this is awesome. Whatever it is, because we get to do pretty amazing stuff. Um, and you know, we tend to love creating, uh, something organized and beautiful out of absolute chaos, which is really, you know, something that drives a lot of people act quite insane. Um, but you just never know what's going to roll through the door or what you're going to get a call about. And we see things sometimes that we never thought we would have seen before. So it's pretty awesome what we get to do and, and what we get to uh, address sometimes.
0: So you always have to have that sort of maximum situational awareness when you're the trauma surgeon on call.
1: Yeah, and I would say we we really are kind of this um, safety net, right, for the hospital yeah. because we're yeah. we're surgeons, yes, but we're also um, critical care intensivists. Um, and so, whether it's an airway emergency or uh, a code where someone needs vascular access, right, um, we can be there in addition to handling the traumas that come come in and the acute general surgery issues and managing an ICU. And so we really can be a safety net for the hospital uh, system, which can also be (laughs) overwhelming at times.
0: For sure. As As an early career trauma attending, how would you assess the morale of the specialty as we sit here, you know, nearly at the summer of 2022, with respect to the variety of challenges that trauma surgeons deal with and what we can all observe and see right in front of us, right? The, the ongoing raging gun violence epidemic in the United States, how would you assess morale, spirit, esprit de corps of trauma surgeons?
1: Gosh, that's a great question. And I will say one of the things that probably we're not great about is actually pausing to talk about that and recognize, um, the profound burden and trauma, both literal and implied, right. That we see and we deal with, you know, certainly we uh, have all played a part in taking care of our very sick COVID patients, right. Being pulled into COVID ICUs and also taking care of COVID patients in our own surgical trauma ICUs and being on the front lines of that. In addition to seeing, um, Profound upticks in violence and, and other traumatic mechanisms, and when you're dealing with those two things, on top of kind of the stressors in society, and working in systems that are strained for resources, and uh, space, and everyone else around you is strained and overworked. Um, I think it's it's hard but I don't know that we've been particularly good about stepping back and saying, Oh my gosh, like, are you okay? Are you okay? Are we okay? Given everything that we've all seen and gone through the last couple of years. You know, I think that we are as a profession are are quite resilient and love what we do. Um, However, aren't particularly good at um, taking a step back. You know, we kind of go, go, go. But I think that what I can say about us is whenever there's a challenge, we're like, we're there, right? You need me to fill the ICU for COVID patients, we got it. You need me to create a disaster plan because we're very good at that and running trauma systems. We can apply that for pandemics and other types of natural disasters and mass casualty incidents, we got it, right? And so I think we're very good at stepping up to the plate and being resilient and adaptable and really serving the needs of not just the patient in front of us, which is the traditional model, right, as a surgeon, But really taking care of a community and being, um, uh, playing a big role in a hospital and a healthcare system as well. And so I think for that reason, you know, we're still loving what we do and and resilient and ready for the next challenge, but also have a need to be introspective and say, gosh, you know, we do a lot and have been through a lot.
0: There's a sense that I get then that a a proactive mindset looking for, a hole and trying to plug it. And I guess that's an interesting analogy used for a trauma surgeon, but like looking for a gap and, and being proactive about closing it as quickly as you can from right. Someone with penetrating trauma all the way up to, like you said, doing something for the community. It seems like that mindset is sort of pervasive.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's so solution oriented, right.
0: Yeah, um, yeah.
1: and, and what can I do with these resources? You know, a lot of us have trained in, in a variety of, of atmospheres and, um, some of us have been fortunate, right, to travel to to other countries. I went to Cameroon as a part of my training and, you know, you really get used to being adaptable to the resources that you have and the constraints that you have in order to take really good care of of patients and communities.
0: So then how did this mindset inform what obviously I'm really excited to talk with you about? How did that inform the creation of turning the tide? Because as an early career attending, and an early career surgeon, there's plenty to do, right? Learning how to be an attending is hard. Yeah. I don't know what it's like to learn how to be an attending surgeon. I would imagine it's really hard. And at the same time, you are conceptualizing and becoming the medical director of this program, turning the tide. Before we get to the program itself, how did that mind? Like, how does that mindset sort of coalesce while you're learning how to be an attending, learning how to operate in a new facility? learning the resources that are at hand and saying, okay, we're also going to create this community-based violence intervention program.
1: So I think that a lot of us, right, we come out of our training and everyone, you know, ask themselves, okay, can I do this? Um, but, you know, thankfully, you know, I went to a very busy fellowship at Harborview University of Washington, where we took a lot of call, worked in a very busy ICU, took care of, Um, really high volume, um, severe trauma. And, you know, I felt like I could stand on my feet and really take good care of patients. But yes, you have to also go back to a a different environment even after your training, right? And and learn to work with new people, new resources. But I think once you do it for a few months, you know, you're kind of like, I got this. What is harder is navigating the environment for everything else, right? Like, learning how to get your research done, learning how to start a program. And so what I always knew that I wanted to establish an infrastructure and a program to help reduce and prevent violence. I knew that years before I became an attending. In fact, really, even before I went to medical school, it was a subject I was very passionate about. And it first really started in some of my work as a crisis volunteer doing uh, intimate partner violence, domestic violence work um, at a local agency and shelter back in North Carolina uh, when I worked for a few years before going back to school. And then really pursued it in my, my master's um, of public health work at uh, Emory in Atlanta and really kind of fostered this knowledge and in this skill set and more than anything, a passion in recognizing that we in healthcare are not doing enough to address violence. And here it is, a leading cause of death for children and young adults. It is truly a public health crisis. The impact on survivors and family members and communities that either survive violence or are exposed to it are profound, right? Not just in terms of injury and disability, um, but in terms of mental health, substance abuse, intergenerational violence after it becomes normalized when you're exposed to it, uh, increasing severity of chronic illness. And so I really recognized that, gosh, you know, we have a much bigger role to play. And certainly as a trauma surgeon, I'm directly caring for the most severely injured. And so I knew when I came back that this was my mission. And so I was fortunate enough to know some really fantastic people in my residency and get involved with the American College of Surgeons Committee on Trauma early and work with really fantastic people that trained me like Joe Saccharin um, and even mentors in medical school that really helped foster my interest and encourage it um, and said, this is important work. You have a role in this space. Not many people are doing it. We need you. And having those relationships and Those opportunities to help foster this work put me on a platform where I got to meet other people, right, doing it. And so, for instance, I met people in California, like Dr. Rochelle Dicker, who started one of the first hospital violence intervention programs in San Francisco. And I got to meet her and become familiar with her work as a resident. And I said, gosh, I'm in the South. We suffer the largest burden disproportionately of of homicide and violent injury. And no one's doing this here. I need to find a way to implement something like this Um, back in South Carolina, where I knew I was going to come back to, to do my first job. And so I think it was a combination of uh, fortune and passion and hard work and having a passion and an interest in this for years before I even came back to do it.
0: What's your sense of the narrative around violence in South Carolina? with the public discourse around it i'm in california the discourse is um one centered around what you're describing um i think people would 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 certainly ascribe whatever term you want to use left-leaning liberal whatever the case but there's i would say an interest in it i don't have a good sense of what the public discourse looks and feels like i know what the you know, the media and the social media platforms that I look at would want me to think that it is. And I always have to remind myself that that's a really limited view. But from your perspective, as someone who not just works there, but also lives there and is from the Carolinas, and this is home, what does the discourse feel like to you as people are living through all of these surges of violence that we're all experiencing?
1: Yeah, so it's it's different here. And and. And I think that's one of the benefits, right? When we go and live and train in other places, you know, and, and having the ability to live and train in Seattle and kind of hear what alarms people there. And I thought, gosh, you know, when I was a fellow and I looked at the number of gunshot wounds they took care of a year, I was like, God, that's not, not that much more than the level one trauma center that I'm going back to in Charleston, South Carolina. And guess what? Our population is so much smaller. <laughs> And our trauma center doesn't serve four states like that one did. Oh, and there's a level two trauma center up the road that's also taking care of violently injured patients. And I think, you know, we're scientists, we're, we're physicians, so we go to the data, right? And the data is clear. When you look at the CDC data, when you look at the FBI data, South Carolina has one of the high, highest homicide rates in the country, So if you take D.C. out of the mix, because it's not quite fair to include them, uh, because it's like comparing one metropolitan area to another, but we have the fifth highest firearm homicide rate in the country in South Carolina. And that's just behind the states of Mississippi, Louisiana, Alabama. The Southeast is disproportionately burdened by particularly gun violence. And when you ask about discourse, I would say this, that globally in the state, I don't think people realize how bad it is. Wow. And I'm not sure that even locally people do. I think there is a little bit more of an awakening and, and even just the recent few months and, in a community just beside us in Charleston and in the city of North Charleston, uh, where I was at a town hall event today where, you know, some of our elected leaders were asking, gosh, okay, what are we going to do about this? We need a plan in place. But when you look at the state and when you look at municipalities and and cities overall here, there's not an investment in community violence intervention, prevention. There's not funding for programs like ours for community violence intervention programs. Um, We have not adopted uh, evidence-based firearm-related policies that help keep people safer. And so I, I think that There is a bit of a disconnect here in realizing how how bad the situation is.
0: So then when you start a program like Turning the Tide, right, a violence intervention program that you're the medical director for, how does it land? When you start it and now, right, again, in the teeth of it, and obviously South Carolina has unfortunately been in the news the last couple of months for, for reasons that have been really striking and really raw and very traumatizing. How does a program like this fit into that milieu?
1: Yeah, I think that... What does help is, you know, when I was coming back to the institution, there had been, you know, a few alarms raised in the community and and certainly at our, our, our medical institution where people were asking the question, what are we doing about this? Because obviously people in healthcare and public health and people that are sensitive to the issue, right, are asking, what are we doing about this leading cause of death? And that helps the cause, obviously, because then leaders, both in institutions and in local government, scratch their heads and say, gosh, yeah, what are we doing? And so it just so happened that I was proposing a solution. Um, That wasn't just a solution, because I think we can all come up with a lot of ideas, but something that's evidence-informed and evidence-based and has demonstrated to be um, effective in other places. And it's not just about um, firearm policy, which people sometimes, right, get sensitive about um, and fearful about. You know, having these um, you know quote unquote um, political discussions, even though it shouldn't be. It should be about public health and the safety and, and well being of of a public, right? And so, I think the timing worked out nicely for me because people said, "Gosh, a hospital violence intervention program where." We actually address the risk factors and root causes of violence and help support survivors and promote recovery and reduce those risk factors um, and maybe stop cycles of violence. Gosh, that seems like a good idea. I think the hard part, right, is propagating it further and bringing attention to it that, gosh, there are solutions that can work. And not only are they effective and good for a community, and oh my gosh, potentially life saving and cost savings, but something that deserves to be invested in. Meaning that you know cities, counties, states say we should invest in this. This is so important um, that it should be a part of our budget. It should be something supported. It should be something funded. Um, it is a public good and a value, um, not just for you know healthcare, but for reducing costs related to the criminal justice system, right? Stopping intergenerational violence, helping people be productive and get jobs and find value in their life. Um, it It's so valuable on so many fronts. And so I think the timing was good. And now it's just, okay, well, how do we sustain this? And how do we propagate it to other areas in our state and across the South?
0: When you started it then, did, was that the response that you got of people saying this is a good tool. Let's utilize it. Let's fund it. Let's support it. Uh, from you know everyone from appointed bodies to elected officials to you know hospital administrators. Or was there friction?
1: Um, there was a mix of it all, to be quite yeah. honest with you. And you know, thankfully, our program was was supported initially to get off the ground for the first year, really in a piecemeal fashion. And thankfully, we got support from the medical school, from the Department of Surgery that I work for the provost office at MUSC, you know, these were leaders in institution that said, okay, we want to support this effort. And then we thankfully use some of our monies that comes to the trauma center, um, from our department of public health from DHEC in South Carolina that comes back to us for the care of unfunded patients, which you would think would be more money. It's not that much money because <laughs> we care for a lot of unfunded patients at our medical center and certainly in our trauma center and for victims of violence. And so we pieced all these things together to get it off the ground in the first year without really any support from, you know, uh, local government agencies. And in the last few months, we've gotten kind of a, a mix of philanthropy, small grants, um, including one from the city of North Charleston. And I think the next step, right, is trying to convince cities and our state government to invest in programs like ours um, for sustainable
0: reasons. You've had a a bump in voltage, obviously. I mean, you've been in the news. The program has been in the newspaper. It's been on local news. It's. I mean, that's how I learned about it, right? One of these stories yeah. was getting retweeted on Twitter, and I saw it and read it, and it's like, this sounds... Really interesting and and hopefully really effective. Does that voltage drop? Does that voltage increase feel sustainable? And does it feel like it's kind of infusing the program? Does it is it is it infusing turn turning the tide with what is needed, or do you feel like it's going to drop back down to a, to a pre existing level?
1: I think to be determined. I think that more people are. Um, becoming aware of it. And, and I've been able to foster some really nice relationships with some yeah. folks in our local government that really appreciate this work and are very interested in, in really investing in evidence-based programs. Um, and they're seeing it done in other states or other states that have passed, like in California, right? But not just California, you're looking at places like Virginia, New Mexico. Right. So not just in the West Coast, in in northeastern states, but other states are investing millions of dollars into this work because there's evidence that that it that it can work and be part of a complex uh, solution. Right. To a complex problem. And so I I do think that there's momentum, but I think it's a little too early to tell um, to see where it will go in our state.
0: What do you hear back from the community from. People who have read about Turning the Tide, seen it on the news, interfaced with it directly or indirectly because they or a family member has been the victim of violent crime or any of the outreach that the program does. What sort of feedback from that really granular community level have you gotten?
1: Well, I would start with our patients and and their families and loved ones. Um, they are so grateful to have our team and I would say, you know, this isn't program a program that's about me. It's really about our team. You know, we have a core group of uh, violence intervention, client advocates, patient advocates that are at the bedside for a lot of our patients. Sometimes when they hit the door in our trauma bay, they're on call 24-7. They get trauma pages just like we do when we're on call. And so sometimes they are one of the first people that our patients see and they say, Hey, man. I hear, I'm here. I care about you. We're gonna help you through this. I wanna make sure this doesn't happen to you again. And we're gonna do whatever it takes to get you back on your feet. And that's profound. And that's profound in also a way that it's not just about victims of violence, but but also being trauma informed, right? Understanding that some of our patients come from communities that feel ostracized and have distrust in the healthcare system and feel like when they go to the hospital that no one looks like them or understands them or the communities they come from, and sometimes might treat them like a criminal or like they did something wrong. And so to have people around them that show empathy and love and compassion and can form a trusting relationship, that's kind of priceless, right? And so our patients from the get-go, you can see something different in their face. But then when our team works with them, right, and helps get them through their recovery, and it's like, okay, what are we going to do to help get your life better? And they help get them jobs and help open their first bank accounts and help get them signed up for a GED program or help them move to a safer community or help make sure they get the mental health care they need. I mean they are so appreciative. Um, and I think that's where telling those stories is really important because it's not just about the quantitative data, right? Like, okay, yes, we serve X number of patients. Yes. We have these many good outcomes. Yes. We've at, so at this point had no incidences of violent injury recidivism, which is a great accomplishment for an early program. Right. Um, although, you know, what really matters too is all the months and years ahead and those are great accomplishments, but To have a patient tell you or say, you made me feel like a human being. I think that says something that is really hard to measure and really hard to quantify. And so they are profoundly appreciative. I think the healthcare providers see it, right? Everywhere from our nursing staff to the secretaries on our floors. You see the way they interact with our team and you see the way they respond when they're working with our patients and they can tell there's a difference and really have embraced them. And I think, you know, the community, it's it's hard, right? Because they still are like, what is this program? I don't understand it, right? A lot of people don't understand what community violence intervention is and what that looks like. And so it's hard sometimes for people to wrap their, their heads around it and really understand the impact of it. And they're also like, okay, well, people are still getting shot. So what is this doing, right? But this is just one prong in a wheel, right, to address this, especially because we're working with some of the most high-risk individuals that have already been injured and, and are high risk of repeat injury. And so that's where we go to the community and educate them on what we're doing and risk factors for violence um, and, and let them know that we're part of a complex puzzle. And it can't just take us. It, there has to be other efforts in our community and in other programs to help prevent and reduce violence.
0: Is there a curriculum for surgeons in training and other physicians and you know healthcare professionals across the board around? I mean, I know there's great works and books around trauma-informed care, but this sort of really granular hands-on stuff, are there, you know, takeaways that you can give, or are there platforms where there there isn't just you, right? And I know there's more, but where yeah. we can get it, where this becomes something that is you know, done at the population level that where the need, the need is, is met.
1: Yeah, I think that we're making strides. Um, I think that number one, we still have a long way to go in improving the education of healthcare providers, whether it's, you know, nurses, PAs, MDs, whatever, in talking and recognizing violence as a public health problem, right? When you look back at your medical school curriculum, it's like, how many lectures did you get on violence? I don't know. I don't even know that I had one. A lot of the efforts were were led by us as medical students, right? And here it is a leading cause of death for children and young adults, right? We were, we were way too preoccupied learning about, you know, um, neonatal disease and childhood cancers and um, you know, fetal and, uh, you know, congenital anomalies, but yet here we are with gun violence as a leading cause of death for children in the United States now. So I think that in medical education and healthcare education overall, that we are behind and, and failing in really trying to teach this as a, a medical and a public health problem. Um, I think that we have made strides in, in, in in trying to promote recognition of social determinants of health, right? And understanding how neighborhood and community influence people's health and their health outcomes. But I think that, again, we are far behind in really teaching, okay, well, how do we address this as providers? And a bigger question is, right, how do we address it in healthcare systems? And oh, by the way, how does it perhaps get reimbursed for or tied to quality outcomes that we're all being looked at for right um, because we know so much now that social determinants of health right the environment we're in really has more to do with people's health outcomes than what we do under the roof of a hospital and so it, in addition to treating the individual in front of us we need to learn how to uh, to treat communities and I think that in surgery there's a growing certainly body of us that recognize this and are involved in research and advocacy and and trying to propagate it. Um, But I think that we're far behind. I do.
0: What would you say are the low-hanging fruit to start to close the gap? Not to be done, not to call it good and pat ourselves on the back and say we're all graduating with honors, but just to move through a moment of inertia and begin some progress?
1: I think that one easy first step, in addition to really Embracing this as our part of our responsibility um, in our role in addressing it as a true medical and public health problem and in education. I think, as healthcare systems, we need to recognize it and say, we are going to invest in this, right? Our program is not that expensive. These programs are not that expensive. You're looking at a few hundred thousand dollars a year. Think about the cost. Of caring for multiple victims of gunshot wounds, it's a lot. And what the cost of a homicide is to society as a whole, it's on the millions of dollars. You know, some studies quote eleven million, some say seventeen million. Between the healthcare costs, right, the criminal justice cost, investigation, there's so many things that go into it, and so we have to take this on and address it like we do other, as we do other medical problems. And I think it's going to take some courage and leadership. And we're starting to see that in other hospitals and healthcare systems. But, you know, even for just every trauma center to say, okay, we're going to take this on, right. And for there to really be a leading voice to encourage that. And I think we're starting to see that more, especially in, in surgical, you know, leadership and societies, but what has to follow that is the funding, right? So we've had three States step up and are now actually using Medicaid to reimburse for violence intervention services. And I think that's one great example of a healthcare system saying, Oh, this is a medical problem. We should treat it as such, (laughs) right? Like we do diabetes education and all these other public health problems. Um, And so I think we need the healthcare system to say, what can we do given what's happening in our community and with the resources we have, we need to invest in this and implement one evidence-based strategy and more importantly, be part of the conversation. We need more doctors, more healthcare providers, more healthcare systems, and leaders to actually be part of the conversation, um, and not shy away from it because it is our our moral obligation to do so, right? It is part of our job to advocate for things that are in the the public's health, uh, the health of the public's best interest, um, and this is one of those things.
0: It's a great call to action. I mean, there's no denying it. The The need is there. The need is growing and there's opportunities for us all to get better across the board. How do people learn more about turning the tide? How do they follow along with you?
1: Absolutely. So we have a website that is up and running that just briefly describes our program um, on the MUSC website. People can just Google us, MUSC TTVIP. And, you know, we our, our media team actually at NUST does a beautiful job writing about our work and profiling patients. We just had a really um, amazing uh, front page story in our local newspaper, The Post and the Courier, um, where they spent hours and hours with us over multiple days um, meeting some of our patients and families. Um, they followed me around our trauma ICU where we were caring for victims, uh, meeting with our client advocates, and I think really tells. A very honest story about um, what we do, and it's not all pretty, right? It's hard. It's really hard work, and it's very emotionally taxing. and I can't speak more highly of our our client advocates. Donnie and Keith, they're just amazing human beings that go above and beyond for this work and for our patients, and we need more of them. And so those are some of the the things that people can do uh, to learn more about us. And I think importantly, there's an organization called the Health Alliance for Violence Intervention Hobby that, work hard to support a lot of our programs, both in terms of technical support and training and really advocating for health, uh, health-based, health hospital-based violence intervention programs. And so I, I really encourage everyone to learn more about Javi and what they do um, because they are our voice and in, in really uh, propagating and advocating for our work and for support for our work.
0: That's fantastic. We'll have links to all of that in the show notes and definitely people should go and take a look at all of that. And if they wanted to follow you in the world of social media, how can they follow you?
1: Sure. I'm on Twitter, Ashby Hink, MD. Uh, you can find me there. I love to promote the work of people in this field and to continue to educate people on the burden of this problem and strategies for us to find solutions. Um, we, we should not accept um, living in, in this violent of a society and we need to step up to to the plate and do more. So at Ashby D,
0: That's wonderful. Thank you so much for doing this. This was, I'm glad this came together so quickly. It was amazing to learn about the work that you're doing and to also just sort of hear that motivation and passion that, you know, it's, it, it, it resonates and, uh, it's infectious. So thank you for all of it.
1: Oh, thank you so much for having me. And, uh, we, we all need a little bit of passion in the world to make it go round. Right. And there's a lot That's of, right. uh, there's a lot of outlets in need, um, and a lot of causes that need a, a vocal advocate. And so I'm, I'm just happy to be in one corner of it and and trying to help improve this issue.
0: My thanks once again to Ashley for joining me on this episode of explore the space podcast. There are links in the show notes to all of the things that she referenced in this episode so please do check those out please do share them around they're great opportunities for learning great templates to work off of as well and hopefully motivating as we need everybody to figure out how they can best weigh in to driving towards a societal change that we know that we need thank you also to Lori bedke and creighton university for sponsoring this episode learn more about creighton's executive mba and executive fellowship programs at www.creighton.edu and thanks to you also for listening. Appreciate it as always. Never take it for granted. I know there's lots and lots of podcasts out there. I'm glad that you are here. Definitely check out the Archive of Explore the Space podcast and the merch store. The Explore the Space merchandise store is open. You can check it out www.explorethespaceshow.com forward slash merch. Hit me on social media Twitter at ETS show, Instagram at Explore the Space show, email mark at Explore We will be back soon with more great contents. Until then, take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Explore the Space. Visit us on our website, explorethespaceshow.com. And please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at ETS Show. And you can email Dr. Shapiro by writing to Mark at explorethespaceshow.com.